0: Dave's School, Digital Animation and Visual Effects School now has two amazing programs you can go to school in fucking Orlando, Florida man, right at Universal Studios there's the classic film uh, program of digital animation and visual effects school, and the VFX program that could prepare you for a career in visual effects and the new gaming program that could teach you how to create characters environments and animation for AAA titles you can learn how to make effects for movies or you can learn how to build games, man, Dave's school has both comprehensive programs, new programs gonna start July 3rd, 2017 so there's still plenty of time to apply, man. They offer student housing, financing to those who qualify and make it easy to happen, man. Dave School's been accredited for over five years. This isn't a fly-by-night operation. They're accredited school, and it's approved for veterans benefits and international students, man. Placement for the school year of 2013-2014 is a staggering 83%. 83%? You know what that means? That means 83% of the people that went to school at the Dave School got fucking legit jobs in the industry. As part of the curriculum, every class makes a short movie or a game. You're going to work as a team just like you would at a studio. Check them out at daveschool.com/smodcast, man. I believe in the Dave School. If you want to be a part of the fun, making movies, making TV shows, be somebody they need, man. Dave School, the the Dave School. daveschool.com/smodcast. You want a podcast? Bro Spotty Mo. It's about time to move your shit. Everybody's Fama Swift for that legend Kevin Smith Welcome to podcast I'm Kevin Smith. Uh okay, this week, man, we got a cool Story for you. This fucking warmed my cockles. As they say, there's a guy I worked with uh, once named Jason Wang. Don't make fun of his fucking name. He's a good dude. Um, but I, and plus he's fucking heard it all. So Jason one day writes me an email going, uh, Hey, good. You know, I hope everything's well catching up. But point of the email is I've got this, this thing that I think you might be into. And he introduced me uh, to a fellow by email name of, Josh Brandon and Josh has a really interesting fucking story to tell that that is mired in fandom. Like this is the story of loving something so much that it doesn't matter um, that there's no practical reason for the reason for, for why you do whatever you do. You're going to make choices that some people would find unorthodox uh, in a world of adults, why would you do that? Were you getting paid? What was the point and stuff? But a fan knows that the point, and the, the reward is in doing the thing itso- in and of itself. Um, and so I was going to tell you this whole story, but like, we'll, we'll, we'll walk into it, man. But welcome for right now to Smodcast, Josh Brandon. Say hello, sir. Hello, sir. Josh, let's tell them who you are and what you do. What do you do for a living? I'm a television writer. Okay, so when you say television writer, uh, sitcoms, one hours, commercials, what?
1: I started in sitcoms when I, I'm originally from Australia and I moved out here several years ago. Started in sitcoms with my writing partner, who's my cousin, mm-hmm. and then he. Oh my of, god, that's
0: adorable! You write with your cousin.
1: I did, I did. He stayed in comedy. I moved to drama.
0: So, and when did how? For, um, we'll sidebar this. How did that? Happen one day, you guys learn we could try this shit.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, he sort of took me under his wing when I was a kid because he was like a few years older than me, mm-hmm. and he directed university comedy reviews. Okay, and so he said, "Hey, you should come write for them." And you know, I went to my parents and said. Can I can I go do this? And they said, as long as you don't miss a day of school by staying up late and working with these university guys, then yeah, go for it. So we'd written together a bit then and both of us always wanted to be T V writers, but there's not much of an industry in Australia. Mm. And it's a little better now, but this is back in like the late nineties when there were three channels and the number one show was Burke's Backyard, which was a gardening show that was on at like seven thirty. So
0: What is the what's the nighttime adult soap opera? I don't know if it's adult, but like I saw a clip of it recently. Where the guy, like the father was barking at the son because he used his iPad and, and found like, you know, porn content or URL and he was like, oh, you're yeah, masturbating. Yeah, yeah. But there's like a show that's
1: I like long either. running. Well, there's Neighbors.
0: I think that's what the yeah, show is. Yeah.
1: And Neighbors has been on for like, I think, 40 years or something like that. Kylie Minogue was on Neighbors. That's how Are you shitting me? That's yeah. the show she was on? Yeah. Yeah. And and Kylie Minogue's gone on to a massive worldwide career and okay. that show's still going? Yeah, I think it is. It's really really popular in England. I think I think that helped keep it going for a long time <laughs> and it doesn't doesn't cost a lot to produce. Right. Yeah.
0: Um okay, so you're thinking you know there's not a fuck ton
1: of uh Australian uh work to be had. So Fuck it. Let me go stateside. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, so my cousin Stephen and I originally, we thought not a lot of TV. Let's do the next best thing. And we started a theater company. So we produced a bunch of shows and then we sort of developed a bit of a reputation for bringing U.S. shows to Sydney. So, like, we produced the Sydney premiere of Urinetown Town, the musical. And ah. then I love You're Perfect Now change. Where were your stages? Where did you go and Sydney? Just wherever we could get a good deal on the theater, you know. Uh, the last show we ever did, we, we got to do in one of the theaters at NIDA, which is the National Institute of Dramatic Art. That was a big moment for us, like, finally getting to play a, a really legit space. Right. But we would just do shows that we liked. So, like, Noise is Off is my favorite play. So, we did that. And then we did Lend Me a Tenor. And then um, when I was still at university – And again, so much of the theme of this is just, hey, no one else is going to do that if you don't do it, so fucking you go do it. Very true. I always thought, you know what would make an awesome play? Pulp Fiction. I'm probably not the only one who's done this, but we did Pulp Fiction as a play. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Because when you turn it into a, a theater piece, it actually really amps up the black comedy of it all. So a lot of it is just fucking hilarious, and we did it. and We had like projection screens to show some some stuff we filmed, like interstitial stuff, and we, yeah, we did it in a little black box theater for a couple of weeks.
0: And it's also, you have the benefit of the whole audience, mostly the whole. Yeah, audience. you not have to imagine. imagine. Yeah, everybody's like, "Oh, I know what this is." Yeah, and that was a shit ton of fun. Um, okay, so when do you guys go? Hey, let's so
1: let's take this elsewhere. Yeah, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We finally <coughs> went. Let's save up some money, move to the States, get visas, all that sort of stuff, and get started. And uh, it you know, it took us a little while to break in, although uh, two years in, we went to a general meeting at, at ABC Family, which is now Freeform, mm. and they said, you know, what ideas do you have? And we kind of soft-pitched them a couple of shows, and then we got a call when we were in back in Australia for another cousin's wedding, and they said, hey, we want to buy that pilot. And we kind of didn't know we'd really even pitched a pilot, and we we just said- Oh, that's that's great, and then the, and then there's this silence, and I remember Jen Gerstenblatt uh, was the who also worked with Jason Wang. She goes, "Did did you hear?" She doesn't actually know this story. She said, "Did you hear us? Is everything all right?" And we kind of looked at each other and went. Oh, yeah, the line between the US and Australia is really bad. That's really exciting. But the truth is, we were just kind of in awe. We had no idea that this was going to happen. You didn't know you were selling a sitcom. I mean, we sort of did, but we didn't know they'd buy it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we know we knew we were selling it. Yeah, we didn't know yeah. they be buying. So we got to write that, which was amazing. And then a couple of years later, we worked on a show. And then we'd always sort of said, one day... We'll probably go our separate ways. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do comedy. I wanted to do drama. And I was always a big sci-fi genre kind of guy anyway. Like I grew up, my mother was from Montreal and she watched Star Trek when she was a kid. And she would sit me down and go, I want to show you this show because everything you're watching isn't really about space. It's about shit that was going on in the 1960s. And so we kind of had always said, you know what? After our first gig together, Mm -hmm. let's split. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's still doing comedy. And I'm doing drama, and I, I got to work on a, a really fun show in the last the last couple of seasons called Haven, which was uh, which where was, was that? Area? That was on Sci-Fi, right? On. And just amazing people, really, you know, gave me a shot and took me under the wing and everything, and uh, I, I love all those guys. And then after that, I got to work on a show that was really near and dear to me called Houdini and Doyle. And that was on that was on Fox here, and it was uh, on ITV Encore in England. I just saw that.
0: I was clicking around on iTunes the other day and oh, I yeah. saw
1: a button for that in Antwerp. Yeah. And the show Houdini and and Doyle, because so it was about the friendship of Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini. But That's what the show was? Dramatized. It was, you know, like... So were they where,
0: getting people out of jams and shit
1: like that? Well, they were kind of investigating supernatural murder mysteries.
0: <laughs> <things like> <laughs> oh, my God. Houdini that show did,
1: sounds amazing. It was. Oh. Go watch it, everybody. Uh, unfortunately, tragically canceled after one year. No! It's, a, it's out there. Go find it. Yeah. That sounds like a cool fucking idea for it, a show. I loved it, because Harry Houdini was a great debunker. He did all the magic stuff in the world and I'm into magic and I'm a member of the Magic Castle and all that, so it was huge for me. You're a member
0: of the Magic Castle? Absolutely. For yeah. those that don't know, here in Los Angeles, right on Franklin, they've got this fixture called the Magic Castle, and you have to be a member to get in.
1: Yeah, you have to you can uh, they have some associate memberships, but otherwise you've got to audition before a panel of magicians. To even perform there. To even become a member. To become a member. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, you can't. It's like you couldn't just go. You can't just roll up on the mat. Right, you castle. gotta be invited. You gotta be invited. Be somebody's guest, and they got a dress code. because yep. a guy like me showed up dressed like me, and they were like, <laughs> "No, I'm sorry, you can't come in without pants." And I was like, "But I never wear pants," and they wanted a jacket too. So, um, but you go there, and they got a bunch of different floors and a bunch of different rooms yep. where magicians are just plying. The yeah, from tree. all
1: over the world, it's like the worldwide home of magic. People come from everywhere to perform there. It's it's just. It's such a fun experience, but for me, as a kid growing up in Australia who was into magic because his grandfather took him to shows, I just never thought any of this would happen. Right. You know, but it's all just because, again, like you'll hear in this story, no one was going to do that. No one was going to turn Pulp Fiction into a play, you know, in Sydney, Australia. So I went, "Fuck it, I'll do it." You know,
0: um, with that spirit, uh, Josh. You know, you heard you heard his bona fides. Uh He's working, uh, creative, and stuff. He's an Australian, who. Dreamed of, of entering that world that like this same New Jersey dreamed of entering. Like, I want to be in this business of show and did it and achieved it. And like for a lot of people, man, like the movie ends there credits. <laughs> it's a happy fucking ending. This isn't even about that. That's right. Yeah. This is about uh, a passion of Josh's that manifested itself beautifully and like is, is something that, uh, I'm a, I can get behind. I think it's fantastic. Um, you're a big fan of the movie Clue.
1: I am huge die-hard fan. What? Where is it in your pantheon of films? It's got to be in the top five. Um, I've seen that movie so many times. I can quote the music cues. When was <laughs> the first time you saw it? I saw it. It played a lot on television, as I as I learned by researching. And I saw it when I was on holiday with my parents. And I remember distinctly because it came on really late at night. My sister and I were in one room and my folks were in the other. And I watched this movie and I thought it was hilarious. And I'd played the board game, which in Australia and England they call Cluedo. Mm. But same sort of thing, you know, all the same characters. And for whatever reason, I honestly think it was the scary music and the, the motif of the lightning and thunder and all that gave me nightmares. But I fucking <laughs> loved it. Right. And so every every six months or so, we got it on, on VHS. And I would say to my mother... I'm ready to watch Clue. <laughs> and she'd say, are you sure? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I really want to watch she'd say, it. I see it inside, again. She'd say, I can't believe I raised a kid who's scared of Clue. <laughs> and sure enough, I got nightmares again. Did you? Yeah. And it's the funny thing is there's nothing really remotely scary about no. that. movie. I mean, people are getting killed and whatever, but honestly, it was just the, the music and the thunder and, you know, and all that and then eventually i became a teenager and could watch it without getting nightmares and it's just a movie that i always return to and i love to to initiate other people into seeing it because there are some people who still haven't now
0: is it does it extend to the rest of the mystery genre or mystery comedy genre have you ever seen murder by death
1: yeah yeah absolutely yeah Where i does love a lot of that stuff too clue i mean i love those movies but clue is just in a class of its own me yeah what about the actual mystery
0: stuff the agatha christie the, and <clears throat> um, various mystery flicks that like, you know, that movie that, that was based on.
1: Yeah. Look, I loved watching Columbo when I was a kid. Mm. And the funny thing is, I used to watch it on TV and I thought, Oh, Columbo, he's this old detective. And it wasn't until years later that I realized, no, they can't, they brought it back. That was a show in the seventies. And I see right. this young Columbo. I'm like, Oh, wow. And there was a whole other world of the There's show. There's a year one of yeah. Columbo. Yeah. There was like nine years of right. Columbo. So that was amazing, but. Actually, a quick side story about Ag- Agatha Christie. Um, th- spoilers. Yeah. So if you don't know the ending of Midnight on the Orient, Ex- uh, sorry, Murder on the Orient Express, which stop listening, stop listening
0: because they're, they're releasing another version of it, another one, another wow. one. So if you haven't read the book, you've never seen the other movies, and you're trying to go into this one dry, going, I don't, I don't know who does it. <laughs> we'll give you five seconds, counting down: five, four,
1: three, two, one. Do it. All right. So here's a story about when I read <laughs> that book, and um, this is like six or seven years ago and I was dating this girl at the time, or well, five or six years ago, who's now my wife, and she hadn't read it or seen it. And so I got the the 74 version of it, the movie with Sean Connery and all those guys. Right. And I said, I really was want P. you to Houston see this.
0: Movie. Is her yeah. Deal, Poirot.
1: yeah. And so we we'd arranged to watch that movie. And a friend of hers from Ohio comes into town and the three of us go out to dinner. But later that night it's established we're gonna watch this movie. I, you know, I spent a few weeks reading the book I told her, don't learn anything about it. I really want you to see it. Because it's a great ending. Like, you don't really see it coming. There's a reason they've made this movie a couple times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and I said to this guy, who shall remain nameless, I said, uh, yeah, so look, I don't know if you've read the book, but Liz hasn't seen the movie or read the book. We're going to watch it tonight. So, you know, don't say anything. And he goes, oh, yeah, they all did it. (laughs) Did she instantly, like... She,
2: she, the next was very question good. is, what
0: do
1: you mean? No, no, I, you know, he said, Oh, I'm just kidding. I didn't know if she really bought that, but sh- she claimed as we watched the movie to not have heard whatever this guy said. Right. So we watched the movie and then later, so she preserved that feeling for me that, Oh, thank God she didn't hear it. And then later she said, Yeah, I heard it dinner.
0: What do you feel like when she confesses? Like, at first, you're like, wow, she loves me. But then uh, you were like, wow, she's as deceptive as the Agatha Christie character. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. No, I, I, really, I really, really bought that it.
1: lie. I, th- I thought it was very nice. You know, because, you know, she preserved that for me. That totally. was really special. She's
0: like, look, this is about him. Yeah, um, and did you eventually force her to watch Clue as well? <laughs> She'd seen Clue, so she knew. Yeah, herself. by then,
1: I I think I introduced her to it, but I can't remember. We actually got to go. There's a theater in Santa Monica. I can't remember the name of it, but they do Rocky Horror Picture Show all the time, and they do it with um, what do they call it? It's it's where they it's a something cast, whether a shadow cast, where they have their actors on stage in costume mm. with the screen behind them, and they're miming every word and every action. And a couple of people got together and decided, let's do that for Clue. And that was like seven or eight years ago. And then I heard, unfortunately, they weren't allowed to do it anymore, copyright and stuff. Like oh, really? That. Yeah. But that was really fun. And because when you go to, and it was at midnight and everybody knows every line. You couldn't hear the movie because everybody was just screaming each line each time it came up, which was amazing. So oh, fucking fun. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. So, lifelong fan of Clue. Yes. Um, has the DVD. Yeah. The Blu-ray even.
1: And notices what? No special features. Uh, there's there's like one trailer, and then I read this Buzzfeed article from a few years ago that basically got into the whole cult following of Clue because the movie was not a success at all, mm-hmm. and the director it was his first movie, Jonathan Lynn who became one of the best comedy writers and directors of all time. He did My Cousin Vinny. He did My Cousin Vinny, and yeah. And he did Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Um, and he's actually got a book he's just written called Samaritans, which you go check out. It's he, He's from England, but he lives in New York, and it's a satire on the US healthcare system. It's really, really whip funny. its I mean, he's just a really, really smart guy. And uh, th- th- this movie almost ruined his career right out of the gate. But he, you know, obviously recovered. Right. Uh, they had three endings to that movie. And, and they knew that in production. Yeah, it's in the script. In fact, there are four endings in the script. Which really? Which we, we can get to, yeah. And we touch on it in... The, in <laughs> I, don't know, I won't say anything, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> um, so, but for whatever reason, the studio decided, let's not put all three endings in, right. which is what they wanted to do. They said, let's do one ending randomly per screening. And then you might get a different ending each time you go, or you can see that this is ending A, and this is ending B, and this is ending C. Let's go pick one, and then we'll see the other one, thinking that people would see the movie three times. But what happened was people went, I'm not going to fucking see the movie three times just to get the last five minutes, so I won't see it at all. So it didn't do very well. Which, if you did that
0: today with a Marvel movie and said, "Yeah, three, uh, there's going to be three different endings got to collect them all. <laughs> the movie would make triple what it was going to make yeah, at the box office because right. people would collect them all. It's, it, it's an ingenious pitch. Um, why it didn't work, I, I don't know. But it didn't work. You're
1: right. It didn't work. But the movie found a lot of life. On afterwards te- on television huge and on home, home video yeah because even though there was a lot of, there's a lot of death in it there's no real violence right so it was perfectly suited to show on tv and
0: it has a stellar cast Christopher, it an amazing
1: cast yeah um, michael mckeon leslie ann warren uh who else i mean tim curry yes as the butler i mean he's amazing it's it's absolutely incredible colin camp uh eileen brennan madeline Kahn. it's just spectacular and martin mull it's fantastic, like amazing start to finish.
0: Blue Apron's an amazing service, folks. It's the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, man. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everybody. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the higher standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. They work with local farms, fisheries, and ranchers all across the United States. As a result, all the seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. Produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming, man. Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental US and 99.5% of food deserts. Because Blue Apron shifts the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe they're reducing food waste, man. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often together, man. Cooking together builds strong family bonds. And for those who spend a lot on restaurants or high-end grocery chains, you can now spend under 10 bucks a person for a delicious meal. Listen to this menu. Warm smoked trout, and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons, spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice, peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes and collard greens and ah basil this is an incredible service i love doing it it's so easy to do and it is fun even if you're by yourself it's kind of fun to see if you can do it uh there's lots of food to choose from man it's flexible customize your recipes each week man blue aprons freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook where they'll make it right man check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com smodcast you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron man so don't fucking wait blueapron.com
1: smodcast blue apron a better way to cook so, um, I noticed uh, no special features, no commentary. And then I read this article that said, apparently when Paramount put together the Blu-ray, Jonathan Lynn, the director, was willing to do a director's commentary. But they didn't care. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to spend the money. So, then you put that together with when I was driving to and from work and Houdini and Duel, I live in Toluca Lake, and the show was at Culver Studios. So, that's like an hour and a half in the car each way. When you're driving out, you know, during business. That's hours. the price you pay for living in paradise. In yeah, California, no, it is. Unfortunately, it totally is. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a long yeah. time you spend in a damn car. Well, I used to live in Hollywood and then I got my first job in the valley and then I moved to the valley and got my next job in Hollywood. <laughs> so I never work where I live.
0: I'll tell you right now, you just changed my life because I'm like, are you kidding me? From fucking Toluca to Culver, it's an hour and a half. I'm never doing that.
1: <laughs> somebody's like, hey, I need a ride. I'm like, you're fucked. Yeah. Well, thanks to Uber, we don't have to take our spouses to the airports anymore. <laughs> well, you don't. <laughs> I still, I'm still the chariot. I'm still Ms. Daisy when it comes to the wife. So, anyway. Um, yeah. So, in the car rides, I'm looking for stuff to listen to on the way home. And, uh, you know, I've got Wi Fi in my car so I can listen to whatever I want. And I stumble upon you and Mark Bernardin doing Fat Man on Batman and you guys decided, you know what? I've got something to say about the two Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman movies, so fuck it. I'm just going to do a commentary, and everybody can watch along at home so I'm not breaking any copyrights, because it's just you guys talking about a movie. Right. But if you sync it up, you can watch exactly what they're talking about. Now, I know the Batman movies really well, so I didn't need to watch them. I just listened to this stuff on the way home. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me that nobody told you, oh, hey, you know, there's no way to do a commentary on one of your favorite movies, and you just went, Uh, I'll do it so I thought maybe I can find Jonathan Lynn and maybe we can kind of do this Kevin Smith style so I kind of figured out what his email address might be Uh, kind of a trial and error thing and then I wrote to him and I told him what a huge fan I was and who I was and what you did so wait
0: you eventually guessed his email
1: yeah well I don't want to give it away because I don't you want don't people have to be a little bit
0: more than a little bit a whole episode. on like, a <laughs> in all the choices one could make. Like you can narrow it down to at least what? 10, 5, 10 that bit of a little bit of like, little bit
1: of a little bit of a shot with three a shot with these or be thinking What might be it. of
0: a little bit
1: of a little Oh, my God <laughs> yeah it's not as it's not as crazy as the it sounds.
0: story here is that <laughs> you you're an empath
1: <laughs> You can see things in, in the other world that others can't Well some people have very simple email addresses that's good and some people don't and some good people point. you know and all that sort good of stuff point.
0: So you yeah. figured it out and you hit them up and you were like
1: I, I said you know, I'm, I'm a, a, I'm a fan. huge fan of this movie and it pains me that no one has ever heard your thoughts on a commentary on it and I said I don't know if you live he's English and I said I don't know if you live in London or LA or whatever but if there's ever an opportunity I'd love to actually just sit down get my laptop out and record this with you and he said well I live in New York and I said I'm gonna be in New York in a few weeks I'll just bring my laptop and we'll do this and whatever and he said I'm actually gonna be in LA in two weeks and I said well if you're gonna be in LA let's do this right so I rented a recording studio in Santa Monica why why I wanted it to sound good. I don't really have any any skills. To That's a fan,
0: about. dude.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't even have to spend the money to get there. Dude was coming to you. I probably didn't. And still, you're like, you know what? This deserves a room. Well, he was staying in Santa Monica, <laughs> and I didn't live anywhere near there. And I thought, where am I going to find a place? Let's just. How my- I had to be
0: ghost, but what's the rental?
1: I think it was like. I think we were there for two and a half hours or two hours, and I think I got away with like three hundred bucks or something like that
0: um can you imagine that 300 bucks that paid for it came from being creative yeah I so guess. you yeah. know you're like money in money out it's like you know it came from there so it's going back there totally yeah
1: um and then i expensed it to my loan out because that's Smart, what you do right yeah. well done <laughs> australia
0: fuck <laughs> you know what you're doing welcome to america Thanks. so at that point was lynn like you know oh I know what this is. I show up, you hit me over the head, take a
1: (laughs) kidney. (laughs) No, it wasn't anything like that. He's just a really nice reserved Englishman. Right. And he said, I think he said, like, how lovely it is that you love Clue so much or how pleasant or something like that. And I just thought, (laughs) what a nice guy. And we met for breakfast beforehand. And he was just sort of shocked that, that anyone wanted to do this and that they had the wherewithal to actually find him and track him down and all that. And I brought my copy of the script with him that I got from Hollywood Book and Poster before it went out of business. They're gone now? Yeah. When did that happen? I looked them up a couple of months ago to, to go check it out, and it, it, apparently it's been closed for a little while.
0: Oh, my God. I was literally going to go down there, of all things, to see if they had a yoga hoser poster. Because like oh, I, wow. I, I, I had one framed, and I looked at it, and it has my fucking signature on it. And I'm like, this looks so <laughs> stupid. So I didn't have a blank one, but I was like, maybe they will there. Oh, God damn it. Really? Yeah.
1: And I was hoping maybe they'd have some sort of online presence. Because I thought, geez, just get a warehouse. Keep the scripts. You can keep that thing going. Absolutely. Absolutely. if yeah. they're listening call me i'll fund that you know like how awesome would that be
0: fuck yeah i'd shop there again apparently yeah. once
1: in a few years because yeah. i didn't realize <laughs> they were closed but if you could do it online and you they know, had moved at house. one
0: point too oh, i didn't know that i think from when i originally found them or maybe the space got smaller but i was in there within the last god i want to say five years i think around tusk or something like that god i used to love walking into that store and just looking up at the wall because you see more posters in that store For current movies than you would at a movie
1: theater. Yeah, they had everything, everything, and all the scripts they had. Yes, I mean dating back fifty years. Fucking well, I'd heard about that place when I was a kid growing up in Australia. Really? And when I first came to America to to LA as a teenager, that's the first place I went. I said, "I got to go to this place. It's called the Hollywood Book and Poster Store, Mm -hmm. and they have like scripts and posters from everything you can imagine." And I was a kid, and this is back when the Aussie dollar was worth nothing, and I had. An after-school job, and you know, and all this sort of stuff. I was 16, and I spent all my money buying scripts, you know, because that's how I learned. because right. we didn't have the internet back then, or it was very, very early internet, and you, I just you learn by reading stuff. I bought a lot of scripts at the Granville
0: Comic Shop in Vancouver. Right. Uh, I bought a lot of scripts at New at uh, the Church Con in New York uh, at St. Paul's. Um, Any con I went to where they sold scripts, you can find one dealer, have a couple in a bin and shit. Like I read Silence of the Lambs eight months before it came out, but I'd read the book, so I knew it was coming and shit like that. But I remember those days. I remember walking into Hollywood Book and Poster the first time um, and being overwhelmed. I had not heard about it Mm -hmm. in advance unless I'd seen like some – sometimes they did like interviews for – you know, like a various TV shows that would travel uh, nationally, like an entertainment tonight. Maybe that was the background. Right. But I remember walking into that place and seeing this gigantic, glorious fucking Batman Returns Michael Keaton Batman poster. Yeah. That I always the three wanted faces. to buy. Yeah. No, just the one by oh, himself. really? Just a bus stop ad? Oh, cool. Um, That is one of the most beautiful Batman posters I ever made. Finding all those fucking scripts. I got a script for 16 Candles I bought there. Really? Yeah. And then for years, I'd go in periodically. I remember taking the kid and stuff like that. And I went in. God, I want to say they. she was small. So, you know, what would that be? So if the kid's about to turn 18, let's say within the last six years, I went in there and stuff. Mm -hmm. And any I ever went in there, it was never like, hey, you're that guy or anything like that. You were just anonymous as everybody else. It reminded me of Quick Stop, an RST video from clerks. Like, just, you know, dudes weren't that interested in <laughs> fucking really helping out people. You're on your own and stuff. But uh, the last time I was in there, they were, uh, as I was checking out, um, the dude was like, hey, man, can I take a picture with you? And I was like... That's amazing. the guy at Hollywood book and poster fucking knows me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God. He I wants to take it. a picture with me. I know. Oh my God. Um, all right. So you had the script you bought from there and you showed Jonathan Lynn. What did he say?
1: Yeah. He said, Oh, that's amazing. You know, and he signed it and he wrote a very nice note on the front and I said, Hey, listen, you know, so the fourth ending is in this script. And he said, wow, I know we shot it. I don't remember anything about it. And so he got to sort of relive that by reading a bit. about it. So there, it. he hadn't even, they didn't, they didn't film it.
0: They, didn't they shoot had a the fourth, fourth ending movie. and
1: they didn't shoot it because while they were so far behind and it was such a difficult movie to make and they were just running out of time and they kind of went, you know what? This ending isn't that good. It's not that funny. So let's just, not so do it. just let it go. Yeah. Um, so
0: that's why we're here today because Josh recorded a commentary track that didn't exist. And he felt, you know, look, th- this world is very simple. You find a hole, you fill that hole. Josh found a hole. And he was like, why is there no commentary track for Clue? And went and made sure there is one with the director, Jonathan Lynn. So fucking charming. It's nuts. Um, How and also as a director and as an old director and as an old director who's made movies that sometimes didn't do well. I got to tell you, like some kid comes out of the blue and says, hey, I want to write some fucking egregious wrong that nobody the universe uh, hasn't rectified yet has to do with you and your work i'm insanely touched i'm i'm, I'm you know i feel value as a filmmaker some sure. kid from the other side of the world from australia for heaven's sakes like every ripple every breeze that had to take both of you throughout your entire lives to the moment where you guess his fucking email address <laughs> and ask him to record a commentary track and in this like, you know, most suspicious world where most people are like, Oh no this dude's like, All right, let's do it.
1: Uh well, you only, us- get, you only get one shot, right? So, you know, I moved here from Australia. I wasn't gonna leave any stone unturned. Oh my god. And so look, scary. when I was a kid, I wanted to be in a band. And I thought no one's gonna invite me to join their band, so I learned very badly how to play guitar and piano and stuff, and then I had a band for a little while, you know, or I wanted to make movies, so I'm and I was obsessed with the Godfather. So I made my own little sort of mafia family business type movie. Cause no one else is going to make a movie and let me write and direct it. So it's we did true. that when I was 15, you know, turned on the sepia tone on the, on the camcorder and did a, you know, 1950s sort of stuff and just did it. Cause no one else will. So do it, you know, um,
0: that is the theme of this episode, ladies and gentlemen, the fact that you don't have to wait for permission. Look, if you're going on somebody's property, wait for permission. <laughs> if we're if talking about creative stuff like this, like I want to do this, I want to see this. As long as there's no rules against it and whatnot pursue it it could it could result in a commentary track for clue with the director that
1: even paramount studios with all the
0: money they have didn't want to pay for
1: and i reckon he would have done it for free i don't think he was asking for money i think they just couldn't be bothered I'm trying to think the it. only cost there is
0: remastering maybe yeah i guess reauthoring and having a remaster printing a a second
1: layer on the blu-ray you know i don't know
0: and they're like how many people want this well
1: a lot (laughs) yeah i'm sure of it right
0: look i've been i remember once on a podcast being dismissive of clue and it was probably the one thing i ate the most shit for of anything i've said on those podcasts it's kind of fucking crazy people love that movie and they can quote it beginning to end
1: um
0: before we dive into it, give us any caveats about the podcast itself.
1: So, um, what are we going to hear? So, we're going to hear, you know, it'll start with me just saying hello and introducing it, and then it'll give you a sync point. So, we're going to say, okay, we're going to press play on the count of three or whatever. And then there's like a second sync point where, okay, if you can see directed by Jonathan Lynn at the same time, we can, you know, that you're roughly in line. It's, I mean, it's, I got to tell you. It's not as thrilling as a Mark Bernard and Kevin Smith Batman thing. I mean, you can listen to those without even watching the movie because right. you guys will just we're wall to wall talking. Yeah, but it it, it exists this is more of a traditional commentary track. Yeah, where you spend the time watching the movie right. and not even <laughs> like talking the Jerry about Maguire much,
0: commentary track
1: where you hear almost nothing. Yeah, yes. and and it does get into that a little bit. I mean, it's very there's a lot of info up the, up the top, and then you can just tell sort of halfway through that we're kind of just watching and laughing, <laughs> and he's reminiscing and saying, "Oh, I remember this thing," and it's just really. Really, really nice and he tells stories about how he's still close with all those people and directed Michael McKean in a play recently and he's you know still really active in his 70s just a really sweet guy um, and it, it was just a lot of fun to do it so by all means you should watch it obviously with the movie be expecting you'll be watching the movie a lot too not necessarily hearing something all the time but you know I hope that, that people really enjoy what Jonathan Lynn had to say about it he's a really great guy and he made a fucking amazing movie that was not appreciated in its time but now everybody gets it.
0: This is a story of fandom, ladies and gentlemen, of somebody who loves something so much they rectified a, a cosmic fucking wrong. <laughs> I don't know how you cut it, how you look at it. There's a cosmic injustice you got to rectify. Um, that That's what loving something is all about. Uh, and And that's a guy who has that job where he shouldn't even have to give a fuck. Hey, man, I'm in this business. and That's what I wanted to do. And I've bet the universe and come from an island nation all the way over here. And fucking I'm working in the business that I want to work in. The odds against all this happening are fucking crazy. And most people just do victory lap and they do that much. But instead, Josh was just like, you know what? There's something else missing in my life. <laughs> and the life of everyone else. So we're going to uh, end and hand off <clears throat> to the commentary track. I was thinking about closing up after the commentary track. But at this point, once this show ends, have you have Clue lined up? Yeah. And then watch it. Oh, my God. You can sit there and and, and listen to the commentary track. Um, it is as a guy who's who makes movies as a director, seeing you respect another director. I thank you from the fraternity and sorority of, of those of us who. Direct.
1: The pleasure is mine. I mean, I'm just... uh, You're right. I don't know why I had any business doing that. And then I don't know why I have any business being here telling you about it. It's just you it, know you it was for it. so
0: great like again it, it, it must have did, did you tell jason can you email him or did jason i didn't even know of-
1: jason knew you until i put two and two together that you guys had worked together yeah. i actually went to a bunch of people who sort of vaguely knew somebody who knew you who knew somebody who worked on the flash and who might have known mark's assistant or all right. that sort of stuff and i tried that we recorded this a year ago but i didn't want to just put it up without getting the word out and i thought you're the guy who made me want to do this. So I got to come to you first.
0: I'm absolutely flattered. And it it is like the moment I read the email, I'm like, I'm not even the world's biggest clue fan, but (laughs) I love the fucking story. And I love the idea that you created it at all. And, and I love the fact that now there's a record and, you know, like the, when somebody Googles in the future, uh, clue, anything, probably going to be on the first page, at least.
1: I hope so. I just hope people get a chance to, to hear it. You know, but- even if they learn one thing or just see something. Or, you know, even if they don't learn anything. Because right. a lot of people know everything about this movie. They know about Carrie Fisher being cast in it and then having to drop out because she had coke problems and what you don't know that no who was she gonna play she was gonna be miss scarlet really yeah and she was all set to do it and um you know jonathan he's so sweet on this he even mentions on the commentary he said i just thought she had hay fever whoa and what year did they make it night they made it in 84 and it came out in 85
0: wow oh my god so that's like right after return of the jedi came out too
1: yeah and right before back to the future came out so when Christopher Lloyd's making this movie, he hasn't that hasn't come out yet. So he's Are you kidding I me? Mean, this he was is like on, a
0: minute before Back yeah. to the Future.
1: Yeah, wow. But they came out in the same year. That's nuts. Yeah, look at that man! Fucking
0: that's that's the kind. Did you know that shit before you sat down on it?
1: Yeah, I, I pretty much researched the shit out Were of. Were you it. able it to tell a, him shit where he's I like, was, really? Yeah, well, he, he hasn't <laughs> seen the script in thirty years or whatever. <laughs> right. He'd forgotten about you know what happened in the other ending. That was kind of cool. But yeah, Carrie Fisher was supposed to be in it. And then she had to go to rehab and they were trying to work out a deal where she would, I think it was, she'd go to rehab at night, but they'd let her out during the day to come and make the movie. And Jonathan Lynn said, yeah, that's fine with me. And then the insurance companies, where do you fucking kill me? It's not fine with us. (laughs) But then they got Leslie Ann Warren. who's amazing. jesus man who
0: knew i had no idea yeah there's a lot lot of little stories like
1: that and i think a lot of diehard clue people Mm -hmm. know that but if you don't and even if you do it's just fun it's just we did it you know it Mm -hmm. exists now
0: the clue commentary track with director michael lynn jonathan jonathan lynn my bad um the great director of my cousin benny yeah i love that movie to death um, exists because of Josh Brandon here man. I give you applause on behalf of everyone in the audience listening to the to your recording. Uh, thank you, sir. These are those. Thank problems. you. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Um, there it is folks. So uh, this show's gonna end and right away you're gonna hear Josh and he's gonna walk you into uh, lining up your commentary track for clue colon the movie didn't they call it that wasn't a clue the movie
1: <laughs> i don't think so I think wasn't it just clue, clue yeah. was it
0: a clue exclamation point or no, something? no just just clue. clue
1: i mean people knew what the game was i think oh so. my god i played that game to death when yeah. i was a kid um
0: there it is folks you're about to hear the clue commentary track thank you josh for being on the show um for smodcast that's it for smodcast this week man i'm kevin smith josh is taking a drink i'm josh brandon uh have a week Lootcrate.com slash SMODCast. You enter the code SMODCAST, you're gonna get three bucks off any new subscription when you sign up today. Subscribe to what you're asking? Come on, you know what Loot Crate is. It comes to your door every month, man. A little package of goods just for you. On a quest for Epic Gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate's got it. The best surprise that you know is coming. Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than twenty bones a month, man. If you're more of a fanatical fashionista than you 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 could try loot wear, monthly wearables and accessories with cult classics and your favorite franchises, man. Or you want to spend a little more money and get bigger metal toys in the box, man? Loot create DX. Wanna geek out with your pet? Loot Pets. I can I could completely vouch for loot pets. They send you a new box of toys and eats for your dog every month. And it's crazy, man. It's like how often do you ever think we'll go out and get a new toy for the dog every month? Loot Pets does your thinking for you, man. Try Loot Pets, but try it fast because this offer expires June nineteenth at nine PM Pacific. After that, that's it. That's done. June's Loot Crate, you'll find items from Spider-Man, Transformers, The Hulk, and DC Comics. One lucky subscriber will also win a Mega Crate. Order away, man. Get into the Loot Crate world. Go to lootcrate.com slash smodcast and enter the code SMODCAST. You save three bucks off any new subscription. Don't wait on others to give you gifts. Gift your fucking self, man. I love Loot Crate, man, because they fucking came up with a genius idea. A box of joy money can buy happiness and that happiness is found at loopcrate.com slash podcast
1: hi folks my name is joshua brandon and i'm sitting here with the one the only the writer and director of clue mr jonathan lynn we're going to start the movie in just a moment you're not going to see anything but you just play along at home and you'll be able to hear the director's thoughts and i might Maybe pop in from time to time. We're going to give you two sync moments. We're going to say one, two, three, play. And on play, we're going to start our movie and you're going to start yours. And then we're going to give you another sync point when Mr. Lin's name comes up as directed by Jonathan Lin. So if you thought you were off by a second or so, we'll tell you when that happens. And you can hit play or pause or fast forward or whatever you need to do. So ready? One, two, three, play.
3: Play. Well, I didn't shoot this bit. <laughs> this is Paramount logo, as you can see. And um, this title sequence was a bit of a bone of contention between me and and uh, Paramount because they wouldn't give me any money for a title sequence. So they told me to do, the, do it all on white letters and black cards, and I didn't want to do that because I thought it needed atmosphere. So... Desperately I searched for some clouds in stock and uh, we used that for the start of the titles and then I used the driving up to the house sequence with titles over, although that had not been planned to use titles with that. Um, and you hear John Morris's wonderful score. John was suggested as the composer by a friend and he'd done... I think, all of Mel Brooks's movies, or certainly most of them. And um, this, of course, was the days before synthesizers and electronic music. So what you're hearing is a live orchestra. And he played the score to me first on the piano, and we talked it through, and we talked about orchestrations and how it was all to sound. And then the first time I heard it was at the recording, which was the way it used to be. And so this scene, although it's got titles over it, wasn't designed to have titles over it. It was supposed to be the beginning of the film after the title sequence. But So here's were driving up to the house. Tim Curry and I knew each other from very long ago. Um, we were at the same school. He was 12 and I was 14 when we first met. And um, he told me once he became an actor because I did, so he realized it could happen. This picture of the house is about painting. Um, it was painted on glass by uh, Albert Whitlock who did all of Hitchcock's movies. He was great. And this shot was from the roof of a real mansion in Pasadena which I'm told is now burned down. Yeah burned down in a fire. And now, now this is not the real mansion. this forecourt was built as part of this studio set. The whole of the house apart from the conservat- apart from the ballroom is a set including this forecourt where the car's parked and the dogs are. Um, This opening joke is one that I've always regretted. Uh, The stepping in the dog poo was suggested by the head of the studio, Dawn Steele, and I thought she knew what she was doing. It was my first film. I I didn't know anything. So... um, I put this joke in and unfortunately I shot it in such a way that I couldn't remove it later. <laughs> a mistake I wouldn't make with subsequent films. Um, directed by Jonathan Lynn. There's your second sync point, folks. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. So, anyway, that that's this joke which we were stuck with forever and some people love it. Um, but it's slightly out of keeping with the rest of the style of the film. Um, we shot this scene with the dogs in the first day and it was very hard because the dogs you know, didn't really understand continuity. And, uh, so we were behind schedule from day one. We didn't get our first day, which was, you know, a big problem. So I was always catching up after that. Um, and now we're in this set, which was a huge and wonderful set built by, designed and built by John Lloyd. And, uh it cost a million dollars I think this set and we were shooting on stage 16 at Paramount which is where Hitchcock shot Real Window it's the biggest stage this is Colleen Camp as Yvette she was great and there's Tim on the way to the kitchen we'll cut back to the library I think that room is The, um, here's Colonel Mustard. I wanted a sort of film noir feel about that opening shot when the colonel arrives. Now, it was often mentioned to me that they should have been dressed in their colors. Miss Scarlet should have been dressed in scarlet, Colonel Mustard in mustard, Professor Plum in plum colors, and so forth. That really missed the whole point of the fact that these characters have aliases which are given to them by Wadsworth. So their names are fake names, and therefore their costumes would not reflect those colors, and I made sure that they didn't. If I'm not mistaken, though, some of their cars match those colors, right? Um, you could be right about that. I don't remember. Yes, I think that's right. Now, here's Mrs. White. This is Madeleine Kahn. And uh, her part was a lot smaller when she read the script. And to my great surprise and pleasure, she said she'd like to be in it. So I wrote up the part of Mrs. White. Most of Mrs. White's part was written after I knew Madeline was uh, cast and wanted to do the movie. So it was very much written with her in mind. None of the other parts were really. All the other parts were written and cast according to how they were written. So here we are. This was shot in Franklin Canyon, I think, um, in Los Angeles. and this is where Miss Scarlet meets Professor Plum. I'd seen um, Christopher Lloyd in uh, Taxi and thought he was very funny, and which is uh, one of the reasons I was interested in him. Leslie Ann was cast very much at the last minute. It was going to be Carrie Fisher, uh, who had done a very funny audition... but then uh, a week before we started shooting, she went into rehab. I didn't know she had a drug problem. She sniffed a lot, but she told me it was hay fever, and I was naive and from London, and I believed it. I didn't know that just about everybody connected with the film was snorting cocaine, which is apparently quite many of them were. Eileen was a very funny actress. Now, here we are. All of this, of course, is a is artificial rain because we're inside a studio set. Michael McKeon is Mr. Green. And uh, the board game, which I played the game when, we grew, when I was growing up. And in England, uh, Mr. Green is called the Reverend Green. Uh, yeah, same but, in australia but in uh, in america he's mr green so that's what we did because this was an american movie and i think in england as well as sydney australia where i'm from it's cluedo cluedo that's right yeah. yes i don't know where the game was invented i think maybe in england
2: I read a great many people for all of the parts, met
3: a lot of people, and Colleen uh, um, Colleen came in to read, and she 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 just was funny. The, um, this is you've each been addressed by a pseudonym, you'll have realized that nobody here has been addressed by their real men. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, had eight weeks to shoot this film and the schedule was very difficult to stick to because most films, actually no matter how big the cast of extras or small parts, have only a handful of leading actors and usually not more than two or three in a scene. This film has seven or eight principles in virtually every scene, which means that you have to do an awful lot of what's called coverage. Um, Close-ups and two shots as well as big or wide shots. And so the, um, the shooting script really had to be meticulously planned in advance, but we didn't storyboard it, we just made a lot of notes. Victor Kemper and I, Victor was the cinematographer and he did a superb job. And we essentially planned all the shots in advance, Though, of course you vary them a bit when you see what the actors are doing. film has a long way to go in terms of building hysteria and so you know it had to start fairly small and quiet and with a lot of pauses when people try to try to figure out who the other characters are and what they're doing there and why nobody knows So, this is the scene in which they all discover that they're connected with Washington or with the government. And this means that they all have something to hide because the film is set in 1954 at the height of McCarthyism, investigations by the House on American Activities Committee. Um, Colonel Mustard, it turns out, has been a a war profiteer. Um, Mrs. Peacock is the wife of a corrupt senator, which, of course, is unthinkable today. (laughs) Um, Miss Scarlet runs an escort service as it would now be called in Washington um, all of these things of course are still still around in Washington D.C. today nothing has really changed except the McCarthyism has slightly gone away
1: what made you decide to use McCarthyism and the Red Scare as a as a backdrop
3: well the reason was that uh, in the, the whole country house murder mystery genre is a period thing. It was more or less invented by Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, and one or two other people, and it, it doesn't really, it didn't really hold up in the modern world. I felt it had to be a period film. And in order to make it a period film, it had to be about some period in American history, somewhere between the 20s and the 50s. I happen to know about the 1950s and McCarthyism because a great many expatriate American writers and directors landed up in England when I was a young man, uh, fleeing from political persecution in America. Uh, Carl Foreman, who did The Bridge on the River Kwai, Mm -hmm. Donald Ogden Stewart, who wrote The Philadelphia Story, Waldo Salt, who later wrote Midnight Cowboy, Ring Lardner, who later wrote M.A.S.H., Charlie Chaplin. I knew all these people in London when I was young, when I was a young actor. So I was very well-educated in this period of American history, and it made it possible for me to use this as the basis for the plot. In the original screenplay and in my original intentions, there was quite a lot of Senator Joe McCarthy and the Army McCarthy hearings in the Senate on TV. But it somehow in the need to create momentum and keep the film moving very fast when we cut it, that all got taken out. I think it was a mistake that we took it out. Mr. Body was originally written for a very upscale gentleman who would have uh, owned this mansion. Paramount wanted me to cast Lee Ving because he was uh, very... uh, He had a hit record in the Billboard charts at the time. So Mr. Body was transformed into a, a more downscale character than he had originally been conceived as. So I was telling you about uh, how Carrie Fisher dropped out of the mm-hmm. film at the last minute. I was very lucky to get Leslie Ann Warren at the last minute, who I thought gave a wonderful performance as Miss Scarlett. You... Most of these actors, I didn't know. I, I lived in England. I'd hardly seen any of them except one or two of them on american tv series so they were just people who came in to meet um and who i liked the most for the parts when i met them A great many people seem to like the script and wanted to be in it this house by the way which is called hill house uh, was of course named after the producer deborah hill who originally had the idea of making this film
1: Did you have a chance to rehearse a bunch before you started?
3: Yes, we had a week's rehearsal. Uh, this film would have been impossible without rehearsal. Um, we started off by looking at the, a great old classic, His Girl Friday, mm. with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, Russell, and I said to them that this is the pace which we were aiming at a very, very fast dialogue and very speedy, and no time for the audience to think. Um, And we did manage to maintain that pace. We may even have made it a little too fast (laughs) for the audience. I think when I saw it with audiences they didn't get all the jokes because they went so quickly. I think on the other hand that's been the reason why it's been one of the reasons why it's been so popular ever since, because people watch it again and again and find new jokes every time they see it. Absolutely.
1: You know, I I have a copy of the script and it's even it's frenetic in the third act like that. Every word Wadsworth says is connected with a dash in between, just to emphasize how fast it all is. Again, there's that great score, it's really just playing an entire part there.
3: Yes, it's a wonderful score.
1: Now, Jonathan, you're a musician too.
3: Did you have a lot to do with sort of crafting the score? With No, I, I didn't have anything to do with crafting it. He's the composer, but right. of course I made suggestions. Um, but it's all John Morris' work. Uh, I think it was maybe easier for him because when he played it to me on the piano and we talked about the orchestrations, I knew what it would end up sounding like, right. roughly. It was quite funny because when we were recording it, the producer, Peter Guber phoned me and said, uh, how's the music? <laughs> and I said, it's fine. He said, it's not great. And I said, it's fine. I didn't know that great was the minimum adjective of praise in <laughs> Hollywood. I thought great applied to Beethoven and Mozart. So half an hour later, his Ferrari shot into the parking lot of the studio <laughs> where we were recording. He came running in saying, the music isn't great. Why isn't it great? And I said, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's great, Peter. It's great.
1: <laughs> I just want to make a quick note here. Everybody's drinking champagne. That will become important because we will try to cram in a very quick discussion on the fourth ending which, of course, is not in the film. We'll talk about that towards the end if we can. <laughs> That's a line I didn't catch until, like, the fourth or fifth year right. of this
3: movie. Well, you know, the, this film is full of political satire. Yeah. Although people think of it as a kind of silly kids' movie, but... There's a lot of political satire in this.
1: I think that's one of the reasons it sort of continues to work. I saw it for the first time when I was a kid, and then you keep watching it over and over again. You get older and you get all these jokes you didn't get before, but it
3: works on all those levels. Well, here's Mrs. Peacock essentially admitting that uh, her husband, the senator, took bribes. (laughs) Something that, of course, is unthinkable in the modern world. (laughs) They don't need to be bribes anymore, of course. Now that's all political action committees and it's legal. So, all of that talk about double negatives and proof positive and photographs is all, of course, word games. Um, it's, it's always been one of my ambitions to make very silly but intelligent films. Um, the Mark brothers were heroes of mine when I was young. and. And you can, you can make a film that's both b- broadly funny and highly intelligent simultaneously. This is another one of those great wordplay
1: moments coming up with the threatened to kill him in public. So was Leslie Anne there during the rehearsal process, or did she join after?
3: Oh that? no, no, she was there for the rehearsal. So just in time for that. Yeah.
1: You can tell me if this is right. I read something that Rowan Atkinson was originally considered for the
3: Wadsworth role. Yes, he was. Um, I wrote the part originally for an English actor who's long dead, but you can see him in a lot of Stanley Kubrick films. Called Leonard Rossiter. Mm who I'd worked with and he was a huge star in England and was very, very funny. I'd hoped to persuade Paramount and John Landis to cast him, um, that when well, Leonard died. I suggested Rowan, who was very popular in Britain, but Paramount refused to consider him. They, I don't think they even looked at the show reel that he sent me. Wow. Um, and then Tim was mentioned and I knew Tim and I thought that was a wonderful idea. So I was very happy with the uh, finished, with the finished
1: casting. I mean, it's like any of these movies. You look at it and you can't imagine anyone else in that role. But of course, obviously, other people came very close.
3: So that's an old move from the three stooges, the two fingers in the eyes. And here's an old move that's, yeah, very,
1: very
2: old.
3: Now, John Landis was originally going to direct this, right? John was going to direct it. I wrote it for John. I would have written it probably differently if I was known I was going to direct it. I'd never directed a film. Um, I was directing at the National Theatre in London at the time. And then um, John couldn't direct it or chose not to, I don't know which, but he, in the intervening time between my writing it and... uh, the film being ready to make, John had other commitments. And he very kindly said to me, would you like to direct it? And I'll be one of the producers. So, of course, I said yes. And the original story is uh, shared between John and me, and, and very that's a very accurate credit. John did a tremendously complicated pitch in which he described many of the events, most of the events that happen in the movie. Um... And it was a very impressive pitch. He ran around his office and shouted and screamed and jumped on the furniture. And, and I was on the edge of my seat. And finally we came to the moment when Wadsworth said, now I can tell you who did it. I know who did it. And I said, who? And he said, I don't know. That's why I need a writer. <laughs> so at that, at that point I realized there were a lot of incidents but no actual story because as Graham Greene famously said, character is plot. Mm. There were no characters. They were just names and colors. Right. So what made this film very difficult to write was that it it, it had many ingredients that had to be in it because um, Parker Brothers, who invented the game, insisted on that. So we had to have all nine rooms. We had to have the secret passages. We had to have the weapons. We had to have the characters with these ridiculous names. And some explanations had to be found for it all. So the the problem in writing the script was to come up with something, come up with a story using all of the ingredients for the game, using John Landis's events. And I had to put coherence and make sense of all of this and do that, you know, with the action and the dialogue, inventing the action and the dialogue. So it was a very difficult job. And I, I gather I was the sixth writer. Wow. On the project. I think there were five before me, one of whom was Tom Stoppard. They all gave up at various points. I didn't know any of this until long after I made the film. So you never saw any of the early drafts? I saw no other drafts. I I thought I was the only writer. (laughs)
1: And here we go. That shot just reminded me of um, uh,
3: Dial in for Murder. Sort of overhead shot. Is there an overhead shot like that? In dial- yeah. I mean, I don't remember. Uh, just, it just it's such a long time ago that I sure. shot this, but I certainly would have seen *Double* *Dial* for Murder*. And you know, this film is a is a. It's not anything like a Hitchcock film because Hitchcock never made a whodunit. He made what he calls suspense films, which meant that you always knew who the bad guy was. Right. By halfway through the film, if not. Usually, within five or ten minutes, you know, in *North by Northwest*. You know who it is from the beginning. *Strangers right. on the Train* you know who the bad guy is from the beginning so his films are suspense films this is a parody of a whodunit um, this is one of and I, it had to be made broadly comic because of course a whodunit is such an intrinsically ridiculous genre looked like he really hit her there yes he didn't really hit her he you, you couldn't possibly have done that. He would have <laughs> knocked her out. And Eileen was rather fragile. She'd had a car accident shortly right. before we made the film. I think this was the first film she made after a serious car accident. She'd been hospitalized. Wow.
1: It's funny when you were talking about having to put all the pieces together and, and figure out a way to make it cohesive. To do that and to also have to come up with four different endings that could all theoretically work. I mean, I don't know how... I don't know how you even wrapped your head around
3: something like that. Uh, it took a lot of planning. Uh, the writing of the film, the actual writing, was very brief. It was probably three weeks, but about a week for each act. The first act, I would say, is up to when Mr. Body's found dead. Second act is the whole of the middle of the film. The third act is Wadsworth's explanation. Right. But between those three weeks of writing, was months of sitting around making notes making drawings,
2: mm-hmm.
3: planning who could be where on the set, you know, in the house so that you wouldn't miss them and so that each of the explanations would make sense that somebody was missing from a crucial shot. Right. Uh, it was very hard to plan. And it meant that improv was essentially impossible during the making of the film because the slightest deviation could have screwed up the the um, explanations at the of end. Of course, yeah. Which which there wasn't one explanation there were four different explanations three finally in the film but four were shot so nothing much could be changed it was too dangerous nobody could think it through fast enough right I was
1: just thinking also you were saying you were making drawings in theory you've got all the rooms that are on the clue board or the Cluedo board but you've got two extra floors here because you also have people in the cellar and you've got people on the
3: second floor that's right I loved Madeleine Kahn. I thought she was absolutely wonderful. Mm. She was a joy to work with. They were all terrific to work with. I mean, they were just the nicest, the nicest cast. Some some of them I've been in touch with ever since. Colleen remained a friend all all my life up to now. And I acted in a play with Michael, I directed a play recently with Michael McKean. The speech, of course, is all about how socialism is so unacceptable in America, and I think has remained the case up to the present day. If you hear, um, <laughs> you hear Chris Matthews talking about Bernie Sanders and saying how incredible it is that a socialist should be running for president, hmm. it strikes me as something from the Dark Ages.
1: I love that reaction from Mrs. Peacock. Yeah, makes sense. Make some money from it. Yeah, here it is. I mean, of course, in 1954, at the height of McCarthyism. Yes, but it's not
3: all that different today, I'm very sorry to say.
1: There's a great contrast here between how Mrs. White is really feeling this and, and being there for Wadsworth, and then you look at Colonel Mustard and he's frightfully bored by the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and again, these are things I didn't pick up until I'd seen the movie half a dozen times, some of them. So now, this whole set existed as just on the one stage you were saying so literally you'd
3: be off the hall and then you'd go shoot in the study yes though we would in fact shoot all the study scenes at the same time and then all the kitchen scenes at the same time and so forth um we didn't start out that way we decided to shoot in continuity because the plot was so complex but as we got behind schedule it became clear that we could no longer shoot in continuity so by the time we were halfway through the film we were shooting out of continuity and finally in the last week or two we shot everything in the hall out of sequence so because it took about three hours to light the hall in any direction Mm. we would shoot everything looking towards the front door from maybe ten scenes and then everything looking towards the kitchen the other end (laughs) from the same ten scenes and the actors were really confused and quite understandably so Fortunately, I knew the script so well that I was able to make sure that everything they did made sense. But it was not easy for them. I love the way Michael plays this moment.
1: And obviously all of this is shot specifically so that the people who aren't supposed to be there are subtly just missing. Yes, that's right. See, Professor Plum's not here now, even though he was at the beginning, and he'll show up again in just a minute. Yes. Get them a couple of times with those,
3: and now plums back. Actually, uh, she and was Mrs. Peacock missing as well, is back, of course. which she wasn't there before. That's right. But there's, you know, it did require a lot of careful planning to make sure that we didn't make any mistakes in all of that because you couldn't correct it later. Right.
1: But obviously, it doesn't play like you notice they're missing. No, obviously just, on purpose. Yeah.
3: Now here we we. Uh, we, we carried in. Uh, we carried her in there, and, and of course, the sound when her head hits the floor is a sound effect. Uh, it didn't really hurt her. But later, when we dragged her across the carpet, it was impossible. She was a big lady. Oh wow! And um, so I, she was on a little a little dolly with wheels <laughs> when we dragged her across the carpet. I had no idea. And well, of course not.
1: Yeah, that's great. And, uh, <laughs> well, I say I had no idea because I've done a lot of research and I've seen the movie a million times, but I still didn't know that one, so that's great. There are discussion boards all over the internet with fans discussing the endings and
3: all the little intricate parts of the film. I mean, yes, I have never seen any of those. I had no idea about that. Yeah. love how she plays that so straight you always play comedy straight of course yeah it's never uh, comedy is only funny if people if people are completely emotionally involved with what they're acting um if people are aware that they're funny they stop being funny What's interesting to me is how much innuendo, sexual innuendo there is in this film, and yet people have always considered it suitable for children. Right. Well, I guess aside from this... I think it's because they just don't understand, the children don't
1: understand it. I didn't. And I was no. going to say, apart from that blood there, there's not much blood in the movie that's full No,
3: there was one other big bloody shot, but I took it out for, to get the rating, the PG rating. What was that shot? When the motorist is killed. Oh, right. That falling into the arm shot was a tricky shot to do because it's widescreen, you know, and that would have been funnier. It is funny, but it we, we took a lot of planning to to make it work in widescreen when you can't really see f- them full figure. Sure. Oh, how did you time this with the candlestick? I queued the candlestick at the right moment. Well, so somebody's just like pulling a string on it or something? Yes. Right. Behind that candlestick is a little hole in the wall. Uh, So on cue, they pushed it. And of course, it wasn't a brass candlestick. It's a rubber candlestick. And there she's on a dolly. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I Uh, guess you just don't think of that, but it makes sense.
1: I love the way when he's on the couch with them. Professor Plum is so lecherous, he, he even pats the cook's butt. There's a bit from the trailer I remember where he says, I'm I'm looking, I'm looking, or something like that. Specifically looking into Yvette's cleavage.
3: Uh, and it's not in the film?
1: No, it's on the trailer. It's yes. the one special
3: feature on the Blu-ray, the trailer. Well, there are so many... Um there's so we cut a lot, obviously, sure. as everyone does when you put the film together. You, you cut scenes that you, that you like. I don't think that's luxury. I think he's just looking for somewhere to put his hand. <laughs> the costumes are wonderful Michael Kaplan a young costume designer who's since become one of the top costume designers in Hollywood did all these great costumes and it's really important because of course nobody changes throughout the picture right. so your image of these characters is the image that you have for the whole film <clears throat> this is Jeffrey Kramer as the motorist he was a friend of the producer Deborah Hill and uh, he was that's how he got in to meet me and he later became a very successful producer. That's right, he produced Alan McBeal, The Practice, a bunch of other shows like
1: that. Yeah. Before this, he was very briefly in Jaws. I know, it because he told me when I met him. So back on the costumes, the the sort of headpiece that miss uh, Mrs. Peacock is wearing. Yes. did you guys figure early on that hey we can do something with this because it just you know brushes into her face a couple of times? Or uh, is that no uh, Eileen invented all that, right.
3: This was tricky. We threw that away, and we tried to get a shot of that key landing. And it kept n- not being on camera. <laughs> it kept being in between the frames. Right. <laughs> we had to do that shot <laughs> several times. It should have been the easiest thing in the world, but it was a very right. difficult one to, to get. I don't know why. Just a regular key? You didn't get heavy key. key or anything? Not a special effect, no. Right. There was nothing digital in those days. You didn't do, you couldn't digitally invent a key and sure. put it in there. You had to shoot it. This is one of my favourite visuals. I components. love this, Martin. This was Martin's uh, gag, pouring it like an army officer. That's great.
1: Uh, oh, and this wordplay is spectacular. What does that mean, uh, Nouveau-Riche
3: Oblige? Oblige. Well, uh, um, I don't know how to explain that one. Um, There is a French expression, Noblesse Oblige, Which means that the nobility are obliged to do things for other people, Mm. noblesse oblige. This is obviously a house belonging not to a nobleman, but to somebody who's nouveau riche. So I changed the expression to nouveau riche oblige. It's a very arcane, esoteric joke for a handful of people who would get it. Right. (laughs) So <laughs> so we move the action back to the kitchen, and then there's the drawing of the lots, which... Um, we were very short of time shooting this bit, but fortunately, we got it all in one shot which I was very pleased about this uh, this shot that's coming up it would have been an awful bore if we'd had to put it together slowly right and everybody just knew which yes everyone knew which one t- to take right and uh, so we rehearsed it once and then and then did it and it all just worked you know the cast were just wonderful I think we did it in one take and uh, somehow everybody found themselves in exactly the right position at every moment in this rather complicated shot. It looks, of course, it looks effortless. The thing about comedy is that it has to look effortless and therefore people think it is. Right. <laughs> right, but just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy. Usually the opposite. Right. Now, was the upstairs actually connected as well? No, the upstairs. This is a set, so the sure. upstairs was a different set. Right, right. Well, no, the landing was was connected, but the actual rooms there. But the rooms else. upstairs were separate, and the cellar downstairs was separate. This is all connected. This is all the same main set. It was an enormous set. Yeah. And, and I, then when they go up those, that, those stairs, then they go on to a different set. And I guess a lot of the time, because everything was connected, you would have to shoot with four walls a lot, right? Yes. Were, we, the walls were all capable of flying, I think, but we practically never flew a wall out. It was just too time-consuming. The, the film was taking too long to shoot. Um, just because of the immense amount of time required to light these huge rooms. Um, and because of the enormous amount of coverage with s- seven or eight people in every scene, you could do a master, but you also, you know, had to do some a lot of close-ups and a lot of reaction shots. So this cellar was all one set, these stairs down into the cellar. Now this is upstairs. There was a much bigger upstairs. We cut a lot of the stuff we shot upstairs. I regret cutting it because it was visually wonderful, but it didn't have any laughs in it. And I was under pressure from the studio and from the producers to keep it moving. It's the great God momentum. I think we lost a lot of visual interest from the film by cutting it as tightly as we did. (laughs) Um, And one of the big challenges of this film, because it's all set in in one big set was to keep the film visually interesting and um, so we focused a lot on keeping the camera moving right Um, and Victor Kemper was wonderful at that and he it was my first film he taught me all about all about that So very soon after this, we have the, oh, this is the ballroom. Right. So the ballroom is the only room that we was not built on the set. There was no room for that. The ballroom was the room at the big mansion of Pasadena where we shot a couple of the arrival shots. Right, right. And we went there for a day.
1: Just one day to shoot all of that stuff?
3: Yes. Wow. So this was a real ballroom.
1: I can't even conceive of just the the continuity. Colonel Mustard's tie is slightly
3: askew there, and it's got to be the same way in all the connecting scenes. We had a wonderful continuity lady called Doris Grau, who was in her sixties or seventies, and uh, was sort of had a voice like Jimmy Durante, and. Uh, well, if she noticed something wrong, as she did a couple of times just before we shot, she would leap to her feet and shout, "Stop the presses!" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but she missed just about nothing. She was quite extraordinary, mm. and of course, all of this is done without playback. Of course, yeah. So in those days, the continuity person really had to see everything, because you didn't. There was no way to double check it right. until you saw dailies the next day. And that was usually too late to correct something but yeah with this with this schedule you can well, with have any, film, any time but, but with especially film. here I mean, right. now continuity people rely on video playback i think too much it used to be the continuity person would prowl the set and check out every detail and take polaroids of every actor and they knew exactly what the continuity was right it's a very very difficult job it's easier now here's bill henderson he played the cop uh he was apart from being an actor he was a very good jazz singer he made a um lovely record with the oscar peterson trio so these secret passages of course were all in the board game And there was a really dramatic and wonderful shot here, which I had to cut. When after the most turistas hit on the head, after this shot, he fell into shot with his head covered in blood. And a big close-up. And it was a great shot. And we were ordered to take it out or else we wouldn't get a PG rating. Wow. So I was very sad about that. It was a really dramatic and exciting shot. Of course, now that would be nothing. Nothing. It would be Nothing. Um, so the conservatory is on the set, um, and that opening scene with Mr. Barty running towards the, with the the glass there and the dogs was just put in because I needed to have some more action in the conservatory. This, right. you know, most of the action takes place in two or three of the rooms, but the conservatory is essential because that's where the secret passage begins. Yep, and I believe that's on the board game. Um, yes. And also, part of the fourth ending takes place in the
1: conservatory. And again, if you want to learn learn more about the fourth ending, there's a Wikipedia mention of it, and there's uh, you know you can just read about it online. It's in the novelization if you can get your hands on it. That's all news to me. <laughs> I just noticed. Is that another painting of, of the butler? I don't think so. Oh, it looks like the one in the dining room, just a little.
3: This is a great bit of physical comedy here. So that collision is very well done. That's four stunt doubles. Yeah, if you look closely. If you look very closely, you can see it, but nobody... I, actually, I can't really tell.
1: One of my favorite lines coming up here from Professor Plum. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, and there's the shot that gets the chandelier. So that sh- hits the chandelier, and now people ask me sometimes, how did we engineer this chandelier? And the answer is I don't really remember, but it was on a series of pulleys. The first thing was what made it revolve. Then we had to do shots of the cable uncoiling. And then we, when we did the final crash down... Um, We had to make sure that it landed close enough to the actors. Um, And actually, Colonel Mustard was a little, looks a little too far from it, for my taste. I was playing Mm -hmm. it very, very safe. Um, We should have perhaps used a lens that foreshortened it so it made him look closer to the impact. Um, You can see a little bit of the blood coming down. You can see the blood there there on his face, yes.
1: And it looks like Colonel Mustard. He wasn't perhaps shot, but it looks like the bullet whizzed by his shoulder, or he caught his
3: jacket somewhere. Oh no, that's not a bullet. That was the—that's um, just something from the chandelier.
1: Oh, okay. Because he says I've been shot, and I thought maybe.
3: Oh, just, it, oh, that's right. Yes, it, it, yeah. it hit the—it um, hit the jacket. That's right. exactly right. Thank you. I forgot that.
1: I've actually answered the door like that a number of times since I've seen this movie. I don't care who it is. Every now and then I feel like it and I just open it and close it immediately.
2: It's
3: very interesting to me in all these group shots, how the actors are all playing the same thing and they all play it differently. Right. They all have an objection, but they're all playing it. They're all playing it their own way in their own character. That kind of business is easier to do on stage where everybody can see all the action. Right. It's quite tricky to work out exactly how to cut it so that it seemed immediate and the audience feels they're seeing it all happening at the same time. How did you come to cast him? Bill? Yeah. Uh, I think he was suggested by Deborah as well. Hmm. You know, it's very hard to remember. It's uh, 30 years ago. That's a good topical line, even now. That's exactly right. Nothing changes. Hmm. to figure out how to show these bodies and make it look not suspicious to the cop right which and i was very pleased with the result yeah
1: and the music adds a lot to it as well when they put the record on it's very very clever
3: It's actually quite horrifying, but it's hilarious. It horrifying, at the same yeah. Time. Very dark humour, and, and I particularly like this. Uh, yeah, this shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get so much just from Michael McKean's reactions there. Now, would there have been huge gaps in, in the shooting schedule for people like Jeffrey Kramer and Lee Ving? Who, I really don't remember, right, but I right. expect so. Yeah. Especially if you were planning to shoot it in order at the beginning. In theory, they would have had to come back, play a dead body again.
3: Yes, I really have no idea. So I chose Shaboom, which works very well, because it was because Paramount wouldn't give me any money for recorded music. And that was the cheapest song we could find really? from the fifties. <laughs> it cost almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I guess it's necessity is the mother of invention.
1: With the titles and with this. It all works. Yes. Well, fine, yes. Do you think the fact that you were running out of time towards the end actually really helped that sort of frenetic energy for... No, I think it made it
3: much harder. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because it, it, it meant the actors didn't have as much time to understand what they were playing and think what they were doing, and I didn't have time for some of the shots I wanted. Mm. Um, running out of time is really never a good thing. You know, this was a very big shot, but... because I, I, I mean, just... The scope of it, the lighting, the big room and everything, and there just wasn't time for many shots like that. Right. You know, Then you jump to the kitchen and this all has to be lit. People don't really understand that making a film is as much about photography as about everything else. <laughs> um, it's no good that the actors are acting well or being funny or whatever if they're not photographed well. Right. And photography is about lighting and lighting takes time. Less time now than it used to. Sure.
2: So that was another matte
3: painting again, of course. And now now all of these had to be set up and shot separately, so this was very time-consuming. That shot used to get big
1: laughs. (laughs) And now this voice coming up. Oh, no, it's later. This one.
2: Yes,
3: the voice of the murderer there, I think, is me, but I'm not quite sure. Right.
1: Obviously, it's it's got to be ambiguous enough that you have no idea who it is.
3: Exactly, it's. yes. It was a strange, difficult problem... The, getting the tone right between all of these shots you see had to be done separately in mm-hmm. different places in order to set up the singing telegram. <laughs> that gets a big laugh whenever, whenever you say this. Um, what was the problem was creating the right balance between tension and comedy. Right. Uh, I wanted it to feel tense or else it would just be pointless you know the audience has to has to understand their sense of fear at the same time you still have to keep punctuating it with the laughs because it's a comedy interest comedy thrillers are an interesting balance so the shop was obviously designed so that to remind the audience where everyone had been. Yeah, but they're, and
1: they're close enough, like, because a lot of people think, oh, how did Mrs. White get downstairs and then back upstairs? But it starts with they're just close enough that they could have realistically gotten anywhere they needed to.
3: That's right. And I like the fact that at this point they're so blousy about the dead bodies that they don't really care much anymore. Especially later when they, they dump the singing telegram in the study. Yeah, they just drop yes. her in there. Yeah, they have you know, getting used to having all these bodies around. They're shell shocked by now. The hysteria's gone and it's now shell shock. hmm.
1: of course, from this point forward, just in terms of continuity, Tim Curry's hair and face had to be wet, I guess, before each take.
3: Yes. (laughs) Now, when he says it's getting serious, there used to be a line there was this is is beyond a joke. But that's not an American idiom. Nobody in America understood it. So I had to change it to this is serious. Did you have preview screenings on this? We did. We had uh, two or three preview screenings. Right. uh, As a result of which, we kept trimming the film and making it shorter and faster, Mm. I think, to its detriment because it didn't change the screening scores at all.
1: I mean, even without the
3: music, this all feels kind of musical, like it has a real rhythm to it. Well this was a brave choice that John and I made here which was to play it with this music to play the music as loud as this and to as it were make this into a choreographed musical mm. sequence. I think this is uh th- this made it seem quite crazy to a number of people although I, I think it really works.
1: I love it. But obviously if you're creating this from scratch, you'd have the music first and then you'd have people. No, the music afterwards. No, but I know, but that's what I'm saying. That makes it even more tricky to do. getting caught up watching it. I'm forgetting to talk. What did you say? I'm getting caught up watching it. I'm forgetting oh, to comment. Right.
3: <laughs> so, it was those shots that took a lot of planning. In other words, who wasn't there right. was key to how the whole script was worked out. also crucial,
1: I guess, in the editing because you, you can't use too many wide shots with that because it becomes too obvious. It's yeah, it,
3: absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I shot it so as to make sure there weren't any shots like that that we couldn't use. Right.
1: Now, in the fourth ending, he is the murderer. Um... So that's, that's kind of amusing because they even...
3: Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's not a problem. No, not at because all. Because he would have lied. Yeah. But you remember what's in the fourth ending and I don't. Well, very briefly,
1: and again, you can go online and have a look and learn more about it. But very briefly, he does the whole, here's how it was done. And he tries to pin it on Professor Plum and Mrs. Peacock working together. And they say, wait, we didn't do it. And he says, no, you did. And then Professor Plum says, whoever's got the gun shot the girl. And then Wadsworth, who still is the butler, reveals it was him and that he poisoned all of them with champagne so he could show them how he committed the perfect series of murders and then leave them to die without the antidote and
3: then tries to escape. You can read uh, the rest of it. But it, it, when we put it together, it didn't strike me as that funny. Right. And so I just dropped it. I think three endings feels pretty good too. Yes. Now, it was your idea during the home video release to actually put them in the order they were in? Well, I wanted them all to be released uh, together when the film came out because I thought it was a mistake to show them in different endings in different theatres and I was proved right on that because what happened was that it discouraged people from going to the film at all. They didn't know which ending to go and see. And I think they also took the view, not unreasonably, that if the filmmakers don't know how to end the film... Maybe it's not worth going to see. Right. So the idea, which was purely commercial, which was if we have three different endings, people will go three times, proved to be a terrible mistake. I had a a feeling that this might happen, but more than that, I felt that each ending, although amusing, was fine, but what made all the endings so excellent, in my opinion my own opinion, was was that um, the fact that it was possible to construct this film and have three endings that all worked and that were all different, all logically possible. So for me, the interest was in putting all three endings together and showing the ingenuity of it. And I think that's why the film didn't work in the movie theaters and subsequently was such a success on television and in video. Right. Because you saw all three endings and you saw how they all worked in conjunction with each other.
1: And would you have put them in the same order? I suppose you would have. because this, the, Yes,
2: uh, as, because the as they order, are on the yeah. video
3: is how I would have, uh, is how I thought it should have been released in the cinema. I was persuaded not. Um, and uh, I made a mistake going along with it. Here's a joke that Michael McKean put in. He's thrown into the toilet. And now he comes out having, <laughs> having had a pee and washed his hands. <laughs> Did you know he was going to do that? Yeah, he told me. He told me at least. Okay. Uh, otherwise, I would have cut already. Right.
1: Yeah, you were saying there's really very little room for improvisation because everything had to be just so. But I guess there are a, f- there
3: are, a there few the small There are the moments. odd jokes here and there, yes, yeah. Yeah. But, but very little. Martin Mull with uh, when I lost my mummy and daddy that's right that line was when I lost my parents he changed it to mummy and daddy which I thought was funnier from coming from the colonel of course uh, coming up a little later the infamous Madeleine Kahn's
1: flames line yes you can you can buy that on t-shirts posters it's it's become such a, a moment for people in fact I don't know if you know this there's, there's a gallery in uh, West Hollywood called Gallery 1988, and they had a whole Clue exhibition about a year ago where just all these different artists put out
3: all this Clue artwork. Somebody sent me something about that online. Yes, mm. I did see that. There's a new soft furnishings company somewhere that's selling cushions with all the women's faces. <laughs> I saw that online too. Wow. I bought a poster
1: that's a blueprint of the, uh, of the ground, of, of the rooms, and has all the endings connected with all these different...
3: So, this is oh, where Colonel Mustard is admitting he was a war profiteer, which, of course, there were plenty of people like that. Of course.
2: And still are.
1: Now, this, of course, is be- just before Back to the Future came out, so Christopher Lloyd wasn't yet as big a star as, I guess, he was. After no, that. this
3: was right, right before Back to the Future.
1: Now, is this, there's a lot of very interesting artwork and,
3: and sort of antique pieces throughout. Is, is that real? or I have no idea. I can't remember. It may have been painted by the art department, may have been found in old antique shops in Pasadena, probably a combination of the two. I'm I'm shocked when I see this film how little America has changed in the last 30 years <laughs> <laughs> By this time we were shooting all of these scenes out of sequence, just in lighting order. Right, right. Which made it extremely difficult for the actors, but they, were, they triumphed over it. Now, this is the point
1: at which the, the endings all diverge. It's yes. that when he turns the lights back on. You always see something new. That's the first time I've seen the lint come out of Martin Mull's pocket. <laughs>
3: There's a line in Alfred Hitchcock's great film North by Northwest Mm. in which uh, it's explained to Cary Grant that the the, the what's on the microfilm is secrets and that's the whole MacGuffin as Hitchcock called it. So of course I took that and used it here.
1: This is another one of those great lines.
3: Yep, yeah, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. <laughs>
1: see everybody else trying to figure it out in the background too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she played that beautifully. And all one shot again. I mean, I don't know if you did shoot coverage of that, but obviously, I, I even if you did. I don't know. Yeah, it plays so much better just as one. So that one was a lot closer.
3: Yes, but we knew it was safe right. because the colonel wasn't moving. Right, right, right. So we established where he was and where it would land, and it would be absolutely safe for him. Tim is quite extraordinary in this sequence. He speaks so fast, has so much to learn, so much action to do, mm. and it's all clear. It's got all these marks to hit, too, I guess, that you couldn't put on the floor. Yes, tremendous precision. Absolute great demonstration of precision in acting.
2: (laughs) I just noticed that.
1: Did you see that? Yes. (laughs) Colonel Mustard adjusting his underwear. Yes. Had a wedgie. Yeah. I swear, I've seen this movie... Countless times, I never noticed that until this moment. <laughs> also, when she's unmasked, she takes off her glasses. I just realized that. What did you say? Uh, Eileen Brennan, when he says, you murder them all, she takes off her glasses. Yes. Yeah. I think Christopher Lloyd does the same thing in the third ending.
3: And Madeline started putting in the, uh, the, the round hands. there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so she has the peacock blue car. Yes, that's right. Now, in the script, he actually shoots her here, which would have been quite
3: dark, I think. Yes, but I cut it just before the yeah. shot because it seemed... And added that line, I, I assume. It seemed like a bad idea to shoot her Dad, when we put it in front of an audience. Right. And this seemed to me this was the best ending, so I put this last
2: mm.
3: when I put them all together.
1: And it's cut the fastest as well, obviously.
3: <laughs> My wife is a shrink, so I had to put in some psychiatrist jokes. <laughs>
1: Now, one question I admit I yeah. always had is how he knew about the secret passage. How who knew? How Colonel Mustard knew. Um, but again, got he, found, me. he found the conservatory one by accident, so it once Well, we don't know that he found to. it by accident. Yeah, that's true.
3: Yes, the, the fact he calls her, uh, says she's stupping Yvette is just nothing to do with the fact that Madeleine played the Lee Von Stup in another movie by Mo Brooks. Mm. This line, of course, is improv <laughs> I, I wanted her to, to, to do two versions, her improv version and what was written, but after we shot her version I thought it was so funny we never shot the other right it's become
1: one of those great quotable lines
3: I like his sporting response to being shot. (laughs) Good shot, Green.
1: Of course, what's very, very clever about Wadsworth not being Wadsworth is that in this version, legitimately, everybody is not being addressed by their real name. 31 years later
3: well I'm just very happy that people still enjoy it and I'm very happy that a lot of the jokes seem as topical now as they did when I wrote them Mm. and I think the cast were really wonderful and give an object lesson in how to play fast which is with the utmost seriousness never ever suggesting for a moment that what they are doing is funny to them.
2: Well,
1: listen, thank you so much if you've been watching along and listening. Just so thrilled to have the opportunity and... Hopefully in another 30 years, we'll still be
3: watching this movie. Well, thank you very much for setting this up, Josh. And uh, I've enjoyed watching it again. (laughs) I hope everybody else continues to enjoy it.
1: All right, that's it from us. Thank you very much.